In the last three weeks, mass shootings in Atlanta, Georgia, Boulder, Colorado, and Orange, California have once again called for prayers, led to pleas for action, and raised the passions of both conservatives and liberals. Did you know that even the definition of what a mass shooting is is subject to debate? and that it is surprisingly difficult to ascertain how many mass shootings have actually occurred in America's recent history. Hey there, News Peelers. Today is Saturday, April 3rd, 2021, and this is Adele with Appeal.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. And oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh, sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just shocks. Like did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of these stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. Two weeks ago, on March 16th, a gunman killed eight people, six of whom were Asian, in three massage parlors in the Atlanta area. Last week, on March 22nd, a gunman killed 10 people, including a police officers who had rushed to the scene in a Boulder area grocery store. And this week, on March 31st, a gunman killed four people, including a nine-year-old boy, in the Southern California offices of a real estate and mobile home dealer. For this episode, we were neither interested in researching the causes of gun violence or the many proposed solutions for it. Such passionate discussions are in the news every day, and everyone, learn it or not, has an opinion on it, and all of this has made the issue of guns politically explosive. So, for these reasons, we weren't interested in opening that can of worms. Rather, for this episode, we set out to answer what we believe to be a rather, well, a rather simple question that historically speaking, has the number of mass shootings dramatically increased in our recent history, say, in the last several decades. It seems like it anyway. Well, what we found was far from simple. In fact, it was frustrating. We found ourselves slipping down a rabbit's hole, lost in a politically charged world in which we struggled to find a common definition for the very term mass shooting, or even a consensus for how many of such a violent incidents we've suffered as a nation. So, for this episode, try to calm your frustration and stay with me as I peel the history behind this news. In researching the history of mass shootings, we would be remiss if we did not briefly touch on the history of the Second Amendment, 
slightly different versions of the Second Amendment were ratified by different states in 1791. So, there are more than one version of the Second Amendment. Here, I will read to you the version that was ratified by the state of Delaware, because it's the one that the Supreme Court used in the landmark 2008 decision, District of Columbia versus Heller. Remember this case, because we'll come back to it. So here's the Second Amendment in its entirety, and if it sounds a little disconnected, it's because that's the way it was written, which has caused much disagreement on its interpretation. Here we go. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's it. The Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is the only amendment to have an explanatory clause. By that I mean the part that reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Many historians and constitutional historians suggest that the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment is meant only in the context of a state militia, which we now call the National Guard. And their arguments are not concocted out of whole cloth, meaning that they're not fabricated. There is basis for it. For example, in the Federalist Paper number 46, James Madison, who later becomes our fourth president, and whom we will mention again here, try to calm the fears of state's nightmare scenario of an all-too-powerful national government with a peacetime standing army. James Madison essentially told the states, don't worry, your state militias would oppose such a national army. That's like saying the National Guards of Utah, Montana, Wyoming, and Arizona would oppose the U.S. Army. Anyway, such statements are clung on to by historians to give credence to their argument that the Second Amendment is all about militia's right to bear arms, not individuals. But as you will note, none of what they say really matters anymore. Because another preeminent legal scholar in 2008, in the Supreme Court case District of Columbia versus Heller, the case that I told you to remember, has had the last word on interpreting the words of the Second Amendment. Before I get there, though, here are a couple of examples of history books on this topic. For the backstory to the Second Amendment, we fetched a book titled The Second Amendment, a biography. It makes sense, right? It's by Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, and it was published in 2014. In September 1787, four years after the Revolutionary War had ended, and a mere three months after Shays' Farmers' Rebellion in Massachusetts that threatened to disintegrate this new nation, delegates from the 13 states met at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the very same building in which they had debated and drafted the Declaration of Independence 11 years earlier in 1776. They convened there to reform the Articles of Confederation, the disjointed organization and dysfunctional political body that had failed them as a nation. The trouble was that they met in absolute secrecy. Each delegate was sworn to secrecy and sentries were stationed at doors and they forbid entry to spectators and journalists. Even windows were shut and blinds were drawn in the summer in Philadelphia. For those of us who have been in Philadelphia in the summer, you know what that could mean in the age before air conditioning. 
This secrecy seeded conspiracy theories and was vigorously criticized. And everyone wondered what was coming out of this meeting that lasted several months and came to be called the Constitutional Convention. When a woman asked Benjamin Franklin what the delegates were given to people, Benjamin Franklin replied, a republic, if you can keep it. We all have heard this anecdote, which is strangely ominous and inspiring all at once. But here's the thing. The story of the birth of our Constitution was more on the ominous side. You see, the Constitution had had a hard time passing because many states and many prominent politicians didn't trust it. Its ratification required all sorts of tricks and arm twisting. And most important of all, people wanted a Bill of Rights to guarantee the rights of states and the rights of the people against the newly created big national government, which seemed all too powerful to these people who had just won their independence from another powerful government, the British Empire. That's why we have the Bill of Rights now, the initial 10 amendments to our Constitution that came about two years after the Constitution was ratified and which limit the power of the federal government in various ways. But they didn't start out with 10 amendments, by the way. For example, Patrick Henry, the man who famously cried out, give me liberty or give me death. And with that cry, he delivered Virginia's troops to help the Revolutionary War. Yeah, that fervent American revolutionary, he actually opposed the Constitution and he demanded a Bill of Rights. And for those Bill of Rights, he proposed no less than 40, 40 amendments. Others proposed amendments too, such as an amendment for limiting presidential terms to two terms, which, by the way, did finally pass, but only 160 years later. It was the 22nd Amendment, and it was passed in 1947. You see, in the 1940s, people wanted to ensure that they don't have another president like Franklin Roosevelt that runs for four terms. And there was another amendment to limit the taxing power of the federal government. <laughs> Democrats, particularly President Biden, would love that, right? And not to worry, Democrats, such an amendment has never passed and probably never will. Another fear of the states was that a new powerful national government will raise a peacetime standing army and disarm the states by taking away the state's militia. One delegate from Maryland argued that the national government would send their state militia to faraway lands and then come and take the state's liberties. By the way, this does happen now. For example, National Guards were in fact sent from different states to protect Washington, D.C. after the January 6th insurrection and attack on the U.S. Capitol. On this matter, Patrick Henry once again cried out, The militia, sir! is our ultimate safety. We can have no security without it. Elbridge Gary, a delegate from Massachusetts, was particularly concerned and caustic about this issue. His state militia had crushed a violent Shays rebellion, and he did not want to give it up. By the way, Gary's the guy who gave us the term gerrymandering. And no, it's not gerrymandering, as almost everyone calls it today. It's gerrymandering. President Reagan, by the way, once corrected people about this pronunciation during a news conference. And gerrymandering is another hot topic that we will podcast in the future. But this story of the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, is not about Patrick Henry or Elbridge Gerry. 
The person that shines in our story is James Madison. He was the father of the Constitution and the man responsible for the Bill of Rights. The man who wrote the Federalist Papers with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay to advocate the ratification of the Constitution. But, but as the pages of Mr. Waldman's book unfold, he essentially tells us that the Second Amendment was not important to anyone, including Mr. Madison himself, and that no one fought for giving gun rights to citizens in their capacities as individuals, owning guns for individual use, versus that of owning guns for use in a militia. After some 63 pages back and forth references and reasoning, Mr. Waldman candidly confesses that, quote, we cannot truly know what the framers intended with the Second Amendment. An earlier book from 2005 by Akil Reed Amar, a professor at Yale Law School, titled America's Constitution, a biography, gives us a similar assessment of the history and intent of the Second Amendment, that it was meant as a right to bear arms as related to militias, not individuals. A line from his book encapsulates the gist of his argument. Founding history confirms a Republican reading of the Second Amendment, whose framers generally envisioned Minutemen bearing guns, not Daniel Boone gunning bears. By Minutemen, Mr. Marr means a member of militia during the American Revolutionary period who volunteered to be ready for service at a menace notice. By the way, these two books are just examples. The scholarship on the 22nd Amendment is just huge, gigantic. And since James Madison was read large in these books and others, we decided to see the Second Amendment from his point of view. To do that, we turned to a 2014 book titled James Madison, A Life Reconsidered. The book is by Lynn Cheney, the mother of Liz Cheney, the Republican congresswoman from Wyoming who voted to impeach President Trump less than three months ago. Lynn Cheney is also the wife of Vice President Dick Cheney, who accidentally shot an acquaintance during a 2006 quail hunt. For those of you who are not familiar with Ms. Cheney, actually guys, it's Dr. Cheney. She has a doctorate in British literature. Anyway, Dr. Cheney is a highly accomplished author with more than a dozen books. So we were eager to learn Madison's perspective on the Second Amendment from her biography of him. However, much to our dismay, the Second Amendment is glaringly absent in the book. To be sure, the book talks about the Bill of Rights, the initial Ten Amendments, as well as other amendments, but not the Second Amendment. So maybe history books are right that the Second Amendment was really not a big deal to Madison and other founders, that it was kind of like an afterthought. We return to the book several times to ensure that we haven't missed anything, but finally stop our search because, because we were reminded of the late Justice Scalia's wit. In disagreeing with a legal argument by some lawyers who were trying to pry a legal position from between the lines in a congressional act, Justice Scalia commented, Congress doesn't hide an elephant in a mouse hole. So the same thing is true with Dr. Cheney's book. She wouldn't hide an elephant, an important topic, in this case the Second Amendment, in a mouse hole, meaning in between the lines somewhere in the extensive volume of her superbly detailed book about James Madison. For us, this was a missed opportunity to learn from an author who, as we believe, squarely falls in the pro-gun camp. But 
Not all is lost, because another pro-gun scholar, Justice Antonin Scalia, who used to hunt, has the last word on the Second Amendment, and his words matter more than any other, because they were written in a landmark Supreme Court decision, the one that I told you to remember, District of Columbia versus Heller, was a 2008 Supreme Court decision in which, for the first time, the court clearly ruled that the Second Amendment protects the right of individuals in their individual capacities to keep and bear arms. Writing for a 5-4 to four majority, Justice Scalia wrote that the Second Amendment, quote, protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within a home, unquote. As for the history, which we belabored so much here, Justice Scalia wrote that the Second Amendment's text and history demonstrates that it connotes an individual right to keep and bear arms. So Justice Scalia disagrees with the books that we reviewed, and his opinion is all important. In fact, most important because it happens to be law now. It should be noted that Justice Scalia also stated that the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. He wrote that the Second Amendment, quote, is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever, in any manner whatsoever, and for whatever purpose. For example, concealed weapons prohibitions have been upheld under the amendment or state analogs. The court's opinion should not be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms but felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as the schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. Um, by the way, this, this case has been somewhat modified um, in later Supreme Court decisions, which I invite you to go and read if you're interested to learn, to learn more about this. So, outside the legal confines of writing a Supreme Court case, Justice Scalia commented on this case and the meaning of the Second Amendment. A book titled Scalia Speaks, Reflection on Law, Faith, and Life Well Lived was published in 2017, a year after Justice Scalia's passing. By the way, he passed on during a vacation in Texas, where he had gone quail hunting. That book, which is forwarded by Justice Scalia's close friend, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is a collection of Justice Scalia's best speeches. In one section, Justice Scalia teases out a cultural difference between Europe and America. He says that historically speaking, Europeans did not trust their people with guns. But in America, our founders trusted our people to bear arms for many purposes, including protected themselves against this state itself. Justice Scalia explained that the Second Amendment did not confer a right because bearing arms was a pre-existing right. But he went on to explain that although his analysis an interpretation of the history of the Second Amendment led him to believe that it was not limited to bearing arms in a military connotation. He added that, quote, I must concede, therefore, that in some cases historical inquiry into the original meaning may be difficult, meaning that it's tough to figure out from history what the founders really meant. In a moment, we'll share with you our difficulty in understanding the history behind America's recent mass shootings. This podcast is available on your device on Spotify, Apple, Google, 
and other podcast apps. You can also listen to us online on Anchor.fm. Subscribe and follow our podcast. And don't keep us all to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Now that we know a little bit about the Second Amendment, let's see if the number of mass shootings have increased in recent history. We can even research to see if they have increased since Justice Scalia's landmark 2008 decision in District of Columbia versus Heller. But here's the thing. I can't really answer that question because there are no definitive answers. It's a simple question, right? Do we have more mass shootings or not? Different experts Nonpartisan, liberal, and conservatives reach different conclusions, contradicting and opposing conclusions. Let me give you some examples. The American Enterprise Institute is a conservative public policy think tank. In December 2015, it published an article titled, in part, More Guns, Less Gun Violence. That article covered a 20-year period from 1993 to 2013 and found that the percentage of gun homicide decreased decreased by 49% as the number of privately owned guns increased by 56%. Really? I say really not to exclaim a disagreement. I guess I say really as in, really? That happened? As if responding to my shock, the article states, and I quote, in contrast to the widely embraced narrative perpetuated by liberal politicians and the media that gun violence in America is getting worse all the time, the data reveal that the exact opposite is true. But then, the author makes a big exception to what we just said. Quote, A certain type of mass shooting is apparently becoming more frequent. Ah, so mass shootings are not on the decline. They are on the rise. An August 2018 report by the National Bureau of Economic Research picks up where this discussion left off. At the outset, it draws attention to a truism that while most homicides are largely overlooked by the media and the public, mass shootings dramatically demand attention, and that this attention creates a fleeting policy window, during which time lawmakers may be more receptive to change. I learned two interesting points from this report. First, that during this policy window after a mass shooting, 15% more gun laws are introduced by state-level lawmakers. And second, such activity is greatest among the Republican-controlled legislatures, which is funny because one would think that it's more prevalent amongst Democrats. The report studies gun violence over a 25-year period, from 1984 to 2014, during which our country experienced 30,000 gun-related fatalities per year. And of all these fatalities, mass shootings accounted for about 0.34% of gun murders between 1989 and 2014, the period that I just told you. This means that in this 25-year period, 100 people died of mass shootings each year. The National Bureau of Economic Research is a highly respected private nonprofit research organization. So, are we done? Is this it? Is this dispositive conclusive data? Not so much. An article in Mother Jones, a magazine that leans progressive, agrees that mass shootings are rare. 
But citing studies by Harvard and the FBI, it concludes that mass shootings are occurring more often. This 2014 article found that their occurrence from 1982 to 2011 was on the average once every 200 days, but from 2011 to 2014, it changed. It became once every 64 days. But this is not the end of the research. There's more. A February 2018 blog post by the Cato Institute, an American libertarian think tank, which leans conservative, of course, puts the conclusion of the Mother Jones article into doubt. After dissecting the methodology implemented by Mother Jones and undermining that article's citation of the FBI report and the Harvard study, the Cato Institute paper concludes that between 1982 to early 2018. So a 36-year period, only 23 people died of mass shootings per year, a fatality rate that it describes as more dangerous than quote falling or the flu. So although the time limit of these studies are different, this number is much smaller than the number of the National Bureau of Economic Research, which was 100 mass shooting fatalities per year. This different data with different time frames are really confusing, aren't they? Here's another perspective. The perspective of the news industry: mass shootings are happening with such a regularity that the New York Times actually has what it calls a mass shooting mode. So last week in an article, it explained to its readers what its mass shooting mode is. So how regular are mass shootings? Well, on November 26, 2017, the New York Times published an editorial titled "511 Days, 500." 55 mass shootings, zero action from Congress. The 511 day span is from June 2016 to about November 2017. So, does the New York Times article represent journalism's perspective as a whole? No, not even close. In 2017, the same year as the New York Times article I just mentioned, Politico published an article titled "Mass Shootings Are Getting Deadlier, Not More Frequent." The article concludes that the frequency of mass shootings hasn't increased; their death rate has, meaning that more people are dying from the same number of mass shootings. According to a study cited in Political, 140 mass shootings occurred between 1976 to 2016. So, is Political correct regarding the frequency of mass shootings in 2017, the same year as the New York Times and the Political articles we just mentioned here? The Wall Street Journal published an essay article that prominently stated, in part, "Quote: It is in your imagination. Mass shootings are getting deadlier and more frequent." In reaching this conclusion, this Wall Street Journal article relied on an FBI report. So we went to the FBI. A 2014 FBI article identifies 160 active shooter incidents from 2000 to 2013. Which it knows has an upward trend during that period. So this FBI report has 20 more incidents than the political article, and over less than half the time span. So this report seems to undermine politicals. And to add to this confusion, the website gunviolencearchive.org provides the following stats for mass shootings. In 2014, there were 269 mass shootings. In 2015, 335. In 2016, 382. In 2017, 346. In 2018, 337. And in 2019, 417.
these numbers blow away the political and FBI numbers. And get this, a sidebar on the homepage of Gun Violence Archive provides this as the number of mass shootings in 2021. 119. So, we're in the third day of April, and this website claims that 119 mass shootings have occurred so far. Their website doesn't seem to provide mass shooting numbers for 2020, the year of COVID lockdowns. But according to the New York Times, 600 shooting incidents occurred in 2020 in which one person shot at least four people. What's up with all these wildly different numbers? Aren't they confusing? Frustrating? In a moment, we'll share with you the definition of a mass shooting. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. And if you are, please consider supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month, which can be canceled anytime. Start your support by clicking the support link right here in the detailed description for this episode. Or click the support button in our podcast profile on anchor.fm. The definition of what is a mass shooting, well, surprise, surprise, that too is all over the place. The National Bureau of Economic Research, which we talked about before, defines a mass shooting as an incident in which four or more people other than the perpetrators are unlawfully killed with a firearm in a single continuous incident that is not related to gangs, drugs, or other criminal activity. But this definition is different than the definition provided by Mother Jones, which defines mass shootings as attacks in public places with four or more victims killed. Mother Jones says that this is the baseline established by the FBI, and it explains that it excluded mass murders in private homes related to domestic violence as well as shootings tied to gang or other criminal activity. The Cato Institute takes issue with Mother Jones's definition of mass shooting, partly because it generally limits mass shootings to situations where the shooter and the victims were unknown to each other. Although that's not exactly what Mother Jones' article really says, if such a definition is in fact applied, then arguably the March 31st mass shooting in Orange, California may not be a mass shooting at all because the shooter had worked with the victims at some point and knew them. To be fair, Mother Jones states that there has never been a clear, universally accepted definition of mass shooting. Even the Cato Institute article suggests that. Really? How can that be? that we don't have a definition on what is a mass shooting. According to a 2017 CNN article, there just isn't a unified definition of a mass shooting. The FBI defines mass shooting as any incident in which four or more people were killed during a related event. But a 2013 Congressional Act defines mass killing as three or more killings in a single incident. Wait a second. Mass killing? I thought we were talking about mass shooting. Yeah, Congress defines mass shooting as a type of mass killing. And Gun Violence Archive, uh, the one that we talked about, the site that claims 119 mass shootings have occurred so far in 2021, which is, by the way, a frightening number that boggles the mind, defines mass shooting 
entirely differently. It says four or more shot and or killed in a single event at the same general time and location, not including the shooter. Shot or killed? So for gun violence archived, mass shootings include those that are wounded as well as those killed, which is different than the definitions of the National Bureau of Economic Research, Mother Jones, and the FBI, and the U.S. Congress, which are also different within themselves, between themselves. Stay with me as we get into the perspective. If this podcast episode seems a bit, well, unanchored, that the discussion and data are all over the place, yeah, I know. We feel that way too. But that's the perspective of this episode. No wonder we don't have a national consensus on how to deal with gun violence. We don't even agree on what a mass shooting is. And we don't agree if it's increased in frequency or not. Or that how many there are over any specific period. And scholars are in disagreement about the history and meaning of the Second Amendment. Although, as we mentioned before, Justice Scalia, who was a preeminent scholar, did set the historical record straight at least in the realm of jurisprudence. And there's yet another problem, lack of data. Both Mother Jones Magazine and GunViolenceArchive.org started keeping data since 2012. In the case of Mother Jones, they work backwards to 1982. Isn't it time for a new approach? And I'm not talking about gun control. That's a whole different can of worms. I'm not interested in that. I'm simply talking about information. In December of 2019, Congress passed a historic law that allocated a measly $25 million for gun violence research, a crisis that kills 40,000 people annually. I say historic because it's the first such a funding in 20 years. Half the money, by the way, goes to NIH, and half of it goes to the CDC. This is pittance for their budgets. Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who ran the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control in the 1990s, said that it's the biggest amount that the federal government has ever put into federal firearms research and that it signals an end to the drought of knowledge about preventing this significant problem. A nonpartisan approach to creating some sort of data source for people to better understand the statistics behind gun violence and mass shootings. Should we put some more money in that? Can this be done? Is this, is this the first steps? Is it enough? If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The beat and rhythm you've been hearing throughout this podcast and are hearing now is called The Success. It's by Keys of Moon Music. And the link and license for this music is provided in the text content for this episode. The names of books we mention are also there, along with their Amazon links. Of course, as always, we don't endorse any books or Amazon, and we don't have any financial relationships with either. We just think these books are pretty cool history and you're welcome to read them if you wish.
Also, for citation to specific pages of these books and other sources we use, you're welcome to visit the post for this episode on our website, thepeel.news. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at thepeel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.